Welcome to Vector. Three, two, one, action. Hello, everyone. This is Peter Gregorio. Welcome to the Vector Interview Podcast. Each episode focuses on a different artist. We meet in person and have an in-depth discussion about life, art, and the concepts behind their work. I am an artist. I'm based in Brooklyn. I curate and write, and I'm the director of Vector Productions Inc. Where, along with my co-director, the Norwegian artist Javier Barrios, we publish the international artist zine Vector. Each issue takes place in a different city and focuses on 25 artists based in that city. Our mission is to spread the ideas and work of artists around the world. We recently launched issue nine of Vector, which was based in Munich. We did the launch at Kunstverein München. Uh, the guest editor was the artist Berta Blau, who was amazing to work with. We had a really good time doing the project.、Um, I did an interview with her. You'll hear it in a few weeks. So Vector Munich features contributions by 25 artists based in Munich. You can check it out on our website, vector.bz, where you can gain access to the journal and all of our、um, past and future projects. If you like the podcast or any of the other projects we are working on, we ask that you support us and become an ongoing subscriber.、Uh, this will help us continue to do this podcast and other vector projects. You can also make a one-time contribution for this episode. Fifty percent of the proceeds will go to the artists. You can find the links here and on our homepage. All right. So today's episode is with New York-based artist Mia Ando. Mia is a descendant of the Japanese bizen swordmaker Ando Yoshiro Mazakatsu. Working in a vast array of materials such as metal, wood, and textiles, her work focuses on the blending of contemporary thought with ancient wisdom. The idea that what we perceive is temporary. Permeates much of her art. Mia has exhibited all over the world. In a recent exhibition at the Asia Society Texas Center, her work "Form Is Emptiness, Emptiness Is Form" blends the surrounding architecture with abstract forms that challenge our perception of time and the nature of reality. I first met Mia around 12 years ago at one of her exhibitions in New York. Mia invited me to visit her studio in Dumbo, where at the time was focusing primarily on staining sheets of metal with acid to bring out subtle variations and gradients that would create a kind of sublime visual event horizon. Since then, we have gotten together around once a year for long discussions that usually take place at a bar in Midtown Manhattan. For some unknown reason,、uh, in the afternoon, where we get lost in a continuous hyperlinking of thought over a few martinis. Recently, we got to work together on a few projects. Mia was one of the contributing artists for Vector Issue Eight, New York, which we launched at the Whitney Museum in 2018. And I was invited to co-curate the Munich Biennial. 
by the Künstler Verbund and the Haus der Kunst. Uh, my mission was to pick 10 American artists to be in the exhibition, which opened in the summer of 2019. I immediately put Mia's name on the list. This discussion was recorded around a year ago in Mia's studio in Long Island City, where we talked about the work for the biennial, the importance of silence, the function of art, and the nature of time. Welcome, Mia Ando. Test, test, test. Test, test, test. This is Vector. All right, we're rolling. Oh, okay. is that the material? Yeah, I, I Yeah, let's check it out. Okay. This doesn't matter. We can just talk and, like, uh, I can edit out stuff. So okay. I just need something to put this on. Some kind of square thing. A square thing? Oh, I just to lay it on like this so okay. it's not on the table. And anything. Then, could be anything. Oh, I have a perfect fit. Okay. Normally I have a tripod, but... I'm a nomad. Yeah, that's perfect. Ooh, wow. Ooh, they're so precious. Oh, it's so heavy and precious. One day I want to do, uh, we have to do an exchange. Yeah. Because. Yes. Yeah. Done. Something black for something black. Well. Oh, is this the material? That is the. um, That's the silk. That's actually, so that is a, a test, yeah. and it is, um, actually this is, let me, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to leave for a second and grab yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I want to show you something, because you can help me make a decision. When I get to location, do we, do I iron it, or do I just tense it, and it'll eventually, like... I think that if we okay. roll it... Yeah, we'll roll um, it in the tube, right? Yeah, we'll roll it, and then I think then we, we, might, we might steam it. If, I might, I might bring it. It's yeah. 58 inches by 300, yeah, is it 370 inches? It's, it's quite, it's quite long. It's 18 feet by 60 inches. It's quite long, yeah. So, um, I'll do another few tests okay. and, uh, yeah, we have time. And then I think we'll roll it and I'll either take it on the plate with me or I'll mail it. Yeah. We I mean, get a something this thin can go in a, you know, I mean, obviously it's 60 inches. But I think if we roll it yeah. at 60 inches, it'll be less wrinkles. 
Yeah. Oh, so the only official thing I'll do is say your name okay. and where we are, just so I get that on. Okay. When you're ready. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> I'm Mia Ando, and we are in my studio in Long Island City, New York. Now we must talk. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so we're talking about the material for the Munich Biennial, which is so cool that I get to have something to put you in. Like, it's so great. Because I've always admired your work. And Thank you. You're just one of my favorite people. <laughs> Thank you. It's an energy Ditto. Thing, Ditto. You know? It's such um, a privilege to make something. Cool. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And, and really, the, the concept and the idea of making something that is site-specific with this material that has an association with curatorial ideas, really, really interesting. I did. I watched The Big Sleep. The did movie. you? Yeah. Humphrey, I love Humphrey. I love it. Um, this is Vector. I loved it. I, I love all... Actually, one of my teachers in high school, I was having problems, and he said he actually would have me watch Humphrey Bogart movies to try to, like channel Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> it's, it's so anachronistic when, you know, I was watching that era, the, just, um, the jargon and hey, the mannerisms. It's, it was so... Hey, Johnny. <laughs> what I, we're gonna do I like that he calls everyone kid. Like, yeah. a, there's something... And then, uh, is that where the whole noir thing comes from? The detective noir? That... The, the vibe of that film and, and the mystery and also the um, referring to death as the big sleep. It's really, it was really captivated. I was captivated by it. Doesn't everybody die at the There's, it, I mean, it's, it's kind it's of mysterious, but a lot of people die during yeah. the course of um, the story that unfolds. I, it, it really, but it, I liked it very much. It appealed to me because it wasn't g- really as grisly and gruesome as TV is these days. Yeah. Um, I have such a sensitivity for like really um, gruesome things, like the, the imagery. And they show the, that now all the time. The, all the CSIs and all that. It just that imagery remains in my consciousness, and it like I'll have nightmares about yeah. it. So it, I was, it was very. Um, I, I think done in a way that suggested uh, what was occurring but wasn't overt in just the, the grisliness of, you know, those things. But I, I loved it. I mean, I think that the poet Annie Dillard who said that cartographers call blank spaces on maps sleeping beauties, I was really thinking about that in terms of things that are not revealed in a direct way, right? So it's about this, maybe, per, the, the, and, the, and the piece will ultimately become about things on the periphery, or they're there, but you can't really see them. You know, like nighttime clouds, they're there, but they're obscured by the night, right? And I, and I love the, the, those metaphors. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in a way, like, 
your work is always about revealing hidden, underlying something. You are listening <laughs> to Vector. You know, and about maybe perception in, in just a general way. Is we perceive things, and yet there are things that are not revealed in those yeah. things, right? So there's something about that that I, I think is fabulous to have an opportunity to get under that idea and investigate and have an allotted time and space to investigate that idea and to really contemplate that and the result of these contemplations result in, in this case, a physical object, right? Yeah. That, that depicts those musings, right? Those, those ideas um, that one meditates upon, right? Sort of a meditation on what are things that are maybe so transitory and look like this fabric. It, it, it's so diaphanous, it, it, it's barely there. And yet it is there, right? Yeah. So those, those things are vastly interesting and, and I'm interested in spending time thinking about that. And somehow, like, I know you're busy, you have a lot going on, but, like, contemplation and time is so important to you. Somehow you've been able to navigate that, and, you know what I mean? I don't know how, I, but somehow... You know, in, in, I think in the process of making, there's always a contemplation phase or period. Like, yeah. in, in the making of anything, I think when you're sitting... And, and thinking and analyzing something, that, that is such an important part of the genesis of a, of a piece of artwork, right? It's sort of the idea, and then in, in my practice, it's finding the appropriate material. And I'm really drawn to elemental things. You know, I like the, these materials maybe that are, have a sort of a sense of uh, dichotomy, I think. I, I like this idea that, you know, something like the metal paintings, they're, they're something we think of as quite permanent or strong and, and industrial could become something else that's, that's ethereal or transitory. And I think thinking about the, the manner in which artworks unfold is the thought process is, is really the key thing. I mean, art is thinking, ultimately, you have visual objects that represent thought. You know, and in the process, you'd be finding the appropriate vehicle. So in this case, I think we've landed, um, after these, these few tests, it seems that this gauze is appropriate yeah. for this particular... Um, we can try it. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be happy. But, like, I know, yeah, with these materials, you... Definitely, I mean, I'm looking at that round piece and it's ethereal and light, but it must be so heavy, the material itself. And like, Physically, really they, they, it they do get heavy. They <laughs> yeah, like now you're working with so many different things, but maybe you always did that. I mean, when I first met you, it was a while ago, right? Ten years more. Probably more than ten years ago. And I, I, went to, I met you at, your, at a show. Chelsea, like up in that building, yeah. and I can't even remember what you were showing. That that was like you know, I was 
Were really, you working with metal? It was or? all metal paintings. I mean, this I've been working primarily with steel, probably at that time, paintings, and transformations of the, the surface. That was the really foundation, and, and still is the foundation of my yeah. the work. And I think that in the past 10 years, um, modifications to those things. I mean, I started to make these solid cube sculptures, which or I started growing the sapphire crystal. Oh my God, they're solid. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, How do you even solid. do that? Well, that actually comes from what in industry is uh, referred to as solid stock. So this is used in, in industry. It usually comes in. Um, this happens. To, that's a four by four. It's a, it's four by four inches, but it will come in a ninety six inch, like an eight and foot. Cut. It's like plywood Standard or stuff. stock. Yeah, used for. An, yeah, it's, it comes or, in eight foot for. So you do a lot of research. You research materials I do. all the time. Oh, I, I do. It's. And you probably have now connections to different manufacturers, and they know you, and you're like the crazy artist girl. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, really, you want one? You know, they probably sell like a thousand for some well, building project, and you're like, oh, yeah. I'll take ten. <laughs> and cut it up into cubes, yeah. and they're, they're, they're like, like okay. what? <laughs> But people tend to like artists somehow. They like to be a part of it. We still have this kind of shamanistic... like vast curiosity. Like, what are you doing? But I feel like we do have access somehow to things. Like, people still believe in it somehow. Well, I think you've got a carte blanche with the right, maybe, vendors or... You know, I, it's, it's, it's taken maybe five or six years to really communicate especially to people who sell sheet metal yeah. that because the, the expectation is that it's going to go somewhere and you're not going to see it right what, sheet aluminum sheet metal like the, all, all of this no, but I can't like use the stuff that's like very very scratched and very very dense you know it's, it's 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 a different level of quality that I may be after so there is that gap but I mean, it's all good. You know, it's all yeah. good. But you've really taken the time and you have a lot of patience because from my point of view, it looks like your practice, it took a lot of time to kind of build your, the whole thing, like the you know, connections with the manufacturers, the it, it, it takes time. And Everything like, takes time, you know. Yeah. My mom says it's... Um, you put a drop of water in your cup every day, and then you look at the cup, and and it's filled with water. So it's it, it's I think it's it's cumulative. All of these things, it's it's daily practice, right? A daily building, and things just don't occur overnight. And neither does thought. I think that's the really the the thing with this work, is that since two thousand two or three, when I started, the work comes out of the work. So the next piece, it is directly related to the last piece that was made. So it's a continuation, there's a continuum of thought. It isn't fast because I think for myself, I, I can't speak for everyone else, but you conceive of a piece, it comes from the last piece, you see it in physical, tangible reality sitting in your studio, and I think that allows your synapses to fire to go to the next 
iteration of that thought, right? The next facet of that thought, what is that? And it's very slow, it's such a slow process. And I think you just have to sort of follow that along as it unfolds to you because you can't say, okay, well, or I can't say, um, okay, in, in five years I'll probably be still making these 24 karat gold moons because the thinking is linear but it unfolds in a very slow and methodical kind of way. At least, I think there are a couple of schools yeah, yeah, yeah. of this. Of Ultimately, but I there's... relate more in my work to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Personally, I've been interviewing other artists. People work really differently. Sure. But like, sure. I can relate. I'm very slow. <laughs> but I also have been thinking a lot about this idea of like that the artwork, this is thinking. Like, through the materials, that's actually thinking. Like, I don't know Art if what goes thinking. on in my head is thinking. I think it's the act of making things that is thinking. That's, that's when we're actually doing real thinking, you know? Through Absolutely. the working. I, I feel, I've always thought that there's something really, really very beautiful in practicing a, a connection with there's a sort of a cerebral part, right? So there's, yeah. there's this, this intellectual part that is engaged in your mind. And then there's, like in Japanese, the word is called kokoro. So your kokoro is like your heart or your soul or um, your intention. And then there's your hands. And to get all of those, th those three things working in harmony, it's to execute a, a thought that also has a bit of your personal soul and poetry, right? So you're reacting to your history or the, or the zeitgeist of the day or to whatever that process, what you are, one is processing, it has a function that engages those three things, right? It's not just, uh, for, at least for myself, it isn't simply a cerebral exercise. There's a, there's a physical execution of something where you engage your technique. In, in my personal practice, there's a transformation or, or alchemic transformation that occurs that I'm very Definitely. interested in as yeah. a visual reiteration of what the concept of the work is. So if one is changing materials or elements from one thing to another or evoking mist on a piece of stainless steel, then that sort of becomes a visual uh, identifier as well as the work is about that, but you sort of have this, I guess it's a visceral component to it because we are all seeing things with our eyes, right? So that's part of, to answer the original question, I think that Incorporating thought and thinking is the primary, is the ultimate in art making. Art is thinking. It just is. It's uh, deceptively simple, you know? Yeah. I like to think of, I mean, I like to think of it as an, an interface. Like you're creating an interface. Yes, just like I any like kind of word. interface, like mm -hmm. the simplest interface is like a mouse, right? Mm -hmm. Or a trackpad. And somehow that allows you to do all these things on a computer. And I feel like with your work, you're making this kind of interface. And when I come to it, it's doing all these things, like <laughs> millions of things. I can't even unfathom it. I like so. being participant in this 
ineffable dialogue, this yeah. a, a dialogue that is primarily silent. I mean, I know it's funny to say that because we're sitting down and, and verbally discussing these things, but ultimately, you and I, we artists, we're each involved in this really marvelous, silent dialogue. And I don't think art is a soliloquy. I just don't think that... So you make a painting and you tell the viewer what it's about. It's just, it's just not that, for myself anyway. I think that I, I don't want to tell people. I can't... I, it, it's silly to think that you can tell people what to think, first of all. That's just a ridiculous thought in my mind. That when, when you put forth an artwork, people will engage it and bring their entire personal history and brat background and all of the things that, that make people unique. Each, each has their own entire history. And they bring it to the work, and they react to it, and they read the work as only they can. And that becomes a dialogue. You've made something, and someone, a visitor or a viewer encounters that and has their own silent dialogue. It says, oh, my reaction to this is it evokes this, that, or the other. And... I love that. I, I really, what a privilege to be part of, of a dialogue of that nature. It's, so, it's a very, I find that to be a really beautiful thing. I, I don't meet the people. I don't need to meet the people necessarily. It's, there is a dialogue that occurs in that instant that really doesn't have that verbal part of it. it, it there's something very beautiful about that. Yeah, I find it remarkable, like amazing that and it's such a bizarre thing because it's it's like yeah it's such a bizarre thing that we do I can't even grasp it really but it's like I'm so driven to keep going and there is something so fulfilling about making something and knowing something's gonna experience someone's gonna experience it whether you're there or not and like and they are going to bring all of their personal knowledge, and I had this, I had, God, I had this man, oh, he's a collector of mine, yeah. he's a Japanese man, and he's, he's this sort of older gentleman, and he's such a lovely gent, and he came into when I had the studio in, in Dumbo, and I just finished, oh, I don't know, it was maybe three or four, just, you know, wet paintings, and I put them up there, and I, he wanted to see what I was working on, and he came in and just he was like, oh, Mia, nice to see you. But then he was completely silent for maybe 15, a long time. I just went and sat down. <laughs> yeah. Completely silent. He was looking at this really deep indigo painting. It was a very, very, very peaceful painting. Just very spare, extremely spare painting. And he said, oh, my favorite one here is this painting of the lake. <laughs> And, uh, you didn't even know there was a lake. <laughs> I, I had a title that I yeah. just, and I said, oh, um, and he said, oh, I know it's a lake because I grew up near a lake when I was a little boy, and this is exactly how I felt when I would sit and look at the lake. And it was a very placid painting. I, I see how it's remained with me because there was something so profoundly lovely about and it didn't bother me that the painting was not about a lake or it was very, it was very abstract work. <laughs> but but it, it did occur to me that I, I guess I'm in this sort of school of thought that says that 
a viewer's reading of an artwork is really just as valid as my own thinking about that piece. There is no hierarchy there, in my, which is not to, you know, I'm not trying to take anything away from myself, but <clears throat> after giving that thought, I think there's a, there's a democracy in making objects. There's something very, very interesting about that. I mean, you know, my thesis has been and, and is an ongoing investigation about time and impermanence and the fact that, you know, the reality of nature is that all constituent forms that create the universe are temporal. This is a vector. That's something that I have been investigating. That that's my life's investigation. I'm Buddhist. That's a yeah. thought that comes, that is a foundation thought in Buddhism. It's also a concept and an idea that has been proven relatively uh, in the recent past in quantum physics. Yeah. So that investigation and examination of time and temporality, those things, that, that, that may be my investigation, mm-hmm. but it may not... <laughs> <laughs> It, 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 it may not be directly uh, communicated, and and it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. It, it it can be on perhaps a visceral or a subconscious level when you walk around a piece of sanded metal that reflects light, and light you see a transitory quality of light. You are attuned, whether you are conscious of it or not. You are attuned to time and the present moment, right? So that fleeting present moment, you become aware of it in some place in your body and in your mind, and we comprehend things sometimes in on that visceral level with our eyes. Right? You traverse a painting, you circumambulate something, and you understand things with your body, even if you're, maybe your intellect is engaged. But you may not have the words for it, and you may not need to. I think that's the place of communication, which is so interesting. Because it's, from what I have been gathering thus far, it seems to be quite universal. We all have that. We have that. Little kids have that. Uh, men have it. Women have it. You know, I'm, I'm half Japanese and half Russian. Uh, everyone has it. It's not, yeah. a, it's not a New York thing. It's you know? not. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's not. And I think there's... Something, you know, today, it's heartbreakingly disparate and so much tension, that much more than I've been aware of in my, my lifetime, of such an attention on what divides us and, and that sort of hatred and, and um, of differences. And I'm so seeking, really deep, deep in my being, I'm, I'm really seeking those bridges between us. It, it isn't about why... You know, Mia is a um, unique snowflake, and and Peter is a fabulous, unique individual. We are all unique individuals. We really are. We're all each of us is a snowflake and unique. But right now, it isn't about that. It's about what we share intrinsically. And I'm so interested in engaging that dialogue, even if it's on a very abstract level. It's a very quiet level to engage the dialogue. But <laughs> I want to go back to what you said about time. Do you think we make time? 
that these works are actually making time. I just because in, I've been reading a lot of physics about the hour of time, mm. and in physics it seems like in the the way a lot of physicists are looking at it right now, it's like a whole series of nows all at once, right? All fixed, but yet. In a similar way to when we look at a movie, we're actually looking at a series of stills, but when it's moving at a certain speed, we see it as moving. And I feel like, are we somehow, because of our senses and our, us being inside this physical world, are we actually making the time? And then when, with an artwork, are you actually playing with that? Like, you can slow it down and speed it up. And I don't know. I'm, what are your thoughts on that? Time is, is really a, a complex notion and construct, yeah. right? So we have these systems around us that you sort of take for granted, but to when you start looking in and around and under what those constructs are. So I, I lived in Asia and, um, and also here in, in the United States, and it has been endlessly fascinating to me. For example, Japan has 72 seasons. Where we have... 72 seasons. Is that... <laughs> yes. Literally. Like every week? Yes. <laughs> About every week. And they have names for all of them. They do. Wow. And, and there are these beautiful names that are drawn from nature, like um, about, you know, the, the frog finally comes out after winter. That's, that's a week. Uh, that's not a... a of that nature, that the, those are the sort of, you know, the, the swallow starts to, to fly around. There's these really beautiful poetic names that, now this is a system that was borrowed from China, had 24 seasons, but because Japan as an agrarian, as an ancient agrarian nation, they had to be very, well, they, for a number of reasons, also Shinto religion worships uh, nature, but they were so attuned and refined these seasonal occurrences to uh, 72, the number 72 seasons. And so in investigating and thinking about that really sort of makes you think about when you deconstruct time and learn that there are other systems that are in place, it all becomes, um, I think, more and more interesting, these constructs. There's something to be said, I think, about this. There's an awareness of this particular moment, right, which is now past. And that, those present moments of this, this sort of fleetingness of time, all things are impermanent. In that, there will be a transformation of some sort. Metal, I mean, this, you think, oh, this is very, uh, this is quite permanent. But it will. It, it is in the process of decaying slowly. This, the strongest thing in this room, it's the glass. The, the cloud glass, glass okay. will outlast everything in this room. Which is so bizarre because the glass sculptures are created with microscopic fractures Where of the they? glass itself. I just want to see what you're talking oh, about. Yeah, So oh, this, okay. This yeah, is, yeah, yeah. This really. Where have I seen these? That was a study for the Noguchi Museum. Yeah. So, very paradoxically, you wouldn't think that in this 
rooms. Of all rooms filled with metal and that. So glass has a very particular nature. One thinks of it as being very, very fragile because it, it breaks. Now, so this object is created harnessing that very unique quality of glass. Is, glass is one of the only substrates that changes its opacity when it has undergone a destructive force. So when glass is fractured, it changes from transparent to opaque. So what you're seeing here is, this is about 100,000 microscopic fractures of the glass itself. It's a tiny, it's super neat. It's like a tiny explosion. I mean, it, it is what a is tiny explosion. It, it's is a it? laser. So it's, so it's light. Like it's thousands of times per second. Just something. crack, crack. And it is explodes. it doing it like you have the cube and it's going through the cube mm -hmm. and, ha and you can set the depth? This particular one is calibrated to go directly to the center, and it goes crack, crack, crack. Well, this is a so this is a drawing. Yeah, yes. So it follows this this. Um, these are very very detailed drawings, Peter. Like very. Are you? Um, are, is it like a vector based thing? Oh yeah. So is it? What are you? I'm just curious. Like, show, you want to see? Right yeah, because um, it's fascinating, right? So it's a vector-based thing. Is it in Illustrator? It goes through so many different processes, um, the most important of which is pencil and paper. I have to bring this to the light. So yeah, I want to see. Okay, so. Okay. And then, is it scanned or is it? Yeah, you know. I don't want to use it. I'm just curious as, I love how you do this. To make something so subtle. The thing is, is that I really enjoy wonder. So when you look yeah, at something and you think, sure. what? I'm in wonder. <laughs> well, because yeah. it's not laminated glass, nor is anything embedded in it. It's not ink. It's it's really it's the most sort of minimal of things because it's simply it has always been and always will be. A solid, a solid block of glass. It's a very ridiculous color. Yeah, but I love it. I love, well, it's, and I just like, you like think of a laser, how many advancements in science and technology to get to the point to have a laser that can do that, and then you use that device and you're making something that feels ancient or from the future. You know, like if I found that, I would think that could be well, that, some ancient thing or some alien thing. Well, these are clouds, which, you know, it's, it's to sort of examine a cloud is quite complicated because they're so transitory and they just, they move and they shift just by the moment. And so in this examination, I was examining, uh, I have another one where I'm examining the structures and that's, I better just show it to you. Yeah, yeah. Always. <laughs> That's the new one. It's so cool. It's so weird. <laughs> I'll show it to you anyway because okay. one of them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They remind me of these this physics things on. Um, so when they talk about like higher dimensions in physics, it's on the small scale. 
And this is exactly what it reminds me of. <laughs> I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, they call it Calabai Yaws or something. He's 11 or 18, I can't remember how many dimensions. This is upside down. So on the very small scale, things are unfolded in these high dimensional kind of loops and patterns. And it reminds me of those. And I'll show you Dude. on my phone. Dude. But right now we're using it. But I'll show you. With string theory, the reason why strings dance in different ways is the shape of the space. And that's what determines which universe we're in. Because <laughs> each universe has a different shape. And the shape determines the strings, how they're moving, which determines what the particles are going to be. And that's what these completely remind me of. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. But what, they're... What a fabulous connection that is. Yeah, they're just uncanny. I don't even know how to describe it. And they're so subtle. And there's nothing there, really. <laughs> there's no weight, except the glass has weight, but the object itself is just weightless. You know, somehow. Well, the, I like this idea that light, light itself, has affected this object. Yeah, it I find, that, I find it, that to be vastly interesting. You know, it, light, it's very... Wow, it's um, remarkable. So, you so, must have been so I happy when you saw the outcome. Like, <laughs> I like things that surprise me. I like, being, I like going down these rabbit holes and, oh my God, you should see, there were so many ugly ducklings sitting around and making this. They're just they're around the studio and they're sad little things that, uh, there's so many investigations yeah. of this. Oh, oh, you mean like, okay. Just things that... You like, have to work through to get to this. Yeah, yeah. You know, 50 things, but if not, maybe yeah. 50 to 80 things, tests and tests and... and um, <laughs> I like to say that my little ugly ducklings didn't they didn't get kissed by the prince you know yeah. they, they just I mean it wasn't um, it wasn't resin resin is not appropriate it, it, you know, all of the the ways in which works are created is, is and this is such a bizarre and a little bit of, uh, certainly unconventional method in in making this but that's also really the fun, I think, of, it's a carte blanche, it's a, really a white care, we can do whatever we want to. The, the freedom in that. Yeah, there's I think no the freedom, the, limits. I mean, as a, that feeling, it, it's such a liberating feeling that you can, we, one can utilize any technique or technology or material in the name of creating an appropriate object for that concept, right? So, I, I, I find that, <laughs> I, I think that feeling of allowing, maybe, you know, sometimes you may have to push technology. This is a pushing of technology. This is, you know, yeah, like what's some of these laser, things. What's the laser used for generally? I think they are, um, etching glass has been around for aesthetic reasons or for, um, in in various industries, I mean etching glass now laser etching glass. That's been that's a, a somewhat recent development. But to combine technologies and to work with people who I think will allow experimentation is. I think so much of this is also about working with 
people who have the ability to respect a, an unusual or unconventional usage of their materials or technology. I get I, people say no to me a lot because they're no, that's weird. You know, no, that's not possible. Well, do they, Even within, do you know what you're doing. Like, do you know what you're going for, or is it happening through researching and then meeting these people, talking to them? I guess it's both, right? Sometimes you know the outcome. Sometimes you see what they're doing, and you're like, oh wait. The thought, the thinking for all of this work is. I know exactly what I want to make. I want to fix a cloud in an object and maintain a mercurial quality. So a mutable quality is what I was after. Because clouds, that, that sort of transitory quality, and also you can't really, can't really put your finger on it. And, and the glass I like very much because it's, it looks so very different from different angles, and it's got this sort of mysterious. Yeah, it's not quality. static because every angle you look at it, it's different. It's, so. it's got this. Uh, but yet quality. it's completely static at the same time. It's and so that is the equation to solve. You know, the genesis of this piece is I had been doing the the cloud paintings, and I thought, well, how interesting would it be to be able to really... This is a real cloud a photograph of a cloud that I saw in Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. And I thought I might go and, and really try to analyze... <laughs> I love Santa That's where my I friend teaches a... <laughs> physics, <laughs> cosmology. Yeah. I am a lover of Santa I'm, You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a Santa Cruzan yeah. in my heart. I've got to go visit him. I, I need to visit him. I'm going to be yeah, there. Yeah, you should visit Anthony. I'm actually going to be there in... And, Next week. And his wife, Sally, she's very much involved in the Zen Center there. Mm. Like, she's for, like, many, I'm going to be many, in Santa Cruz years. on the 25th. I should tell them. That would be... You, he's an amazing guy. Peter, yeah. I'll, I'll send... I'm going to, like, tell him that you're coming mm. and see if he has time. Please do. You should meet him. Please. He's at the university. They're an amazing couple. And I introduced them. Did which you? Is, yeah, which is great. They are two lonely people. Oh. <laughs> now they have two kids. Oh, that's so lovely. I know, and he's like... What a good Cupid you are. I know, that was like... I think I did that twice in my life. Good job. Yeah, with other people. I mean, you, you guys should be in dialogue, because like, I'll just... Connect you Please do. We'll see if it. That would be such a treat. I know, and he's like us, but even he's a cosmologist, which means he's out and never, never land. I love it. Inflationary theorist. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, I want to connect. And he just, we just talked because he wanted to send me something. But um, hold on, let me just. I'm gonna like save this for a sec. Okay. Just because. I get scared that it's going to... All right, and I'll start it up again. Okay. And I'm I just want to show you. I hope we're doing a good job. I hope we're doing a good job. Doing what? I hope we're doing a good job. Oh, we're... This is great. Oh, good. good we're just good, talking. Oh, good, good, good. I mean, if I'm interested, then people will feel that. <laughs> okay, so it's a Calibia manifold. What is it? It's... Ah. It's a particular type of manifold which has properties. Okay, so it's a high-dimensional. Oh, 
I've read about this. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it has to do with string theory, and it's these. It does remind this is particularly yeah. this one, and they're like enfolded space in these higher dimensions, and then the strings move around it. You know, this then, kind of reminds yeah, totally, me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You you have to read about it. Yeah, okay. Because it's like, see, these are them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all different. I mean, supposedly they're see, look. Oh, yeah. There's 10 to the power of 500 different shapes. And that's how many universes they think there are. But, you know. Yeah, uh, okay. I don't even know how to spell it. I'll just send you a link. Yeah. So, all right, we were talking about Santa Cruz. I got sidetracked. Yeah. So what were you saying about Santa Cruz? Do you remember? Or we can just move on. Um, Is that where you're from? I grew, grew up grew in up? Santa Cruz, yeah, to, like, in the school, Santa Cruz yeah. Mountains, yeah. Um, but your family is in both, you have family in Japan and family mm-hmm. here? So my mom, my mom's Japanese, okay. and oh. my parents were hippies, are hippies, were hippies. Yeah, Santa Cruz is the place. <laughs> they um, bought 25 acres of redwood forest and put in a road, and we had, you know, a well, and generator and it was just in the four right in the middle Jesus. of I mean it was Can't even, we walked about a mile world. to where the bus would pick us up but it was just very very off the grid and um, I have such I you know you I think you fall in love with a place like you fall in love with a person and I just I such deep deep love for sure. the Santa Cruz Mountains and the Redwoods, I just, yeah. you know, they... Do you still have it? Is it still in your family? No, they moved, unfortunately, but I, I go to Santa Cruz yeah. frequently. I had that too. We had a house in the very tip of Brooklyn, in Seagate. Yeah. And it's totally different from what you're describing, yeah. but it was like right on the water, mm. right next to the lighthouse. And like... You fall in love with like the foghorn yeah. sound yeah. and the lighthouse, the light coming. Like when I go to sleep, the light would come through <laughs> so when it went around. And it's like I have dreams about it. Yeah. Like everybody in my family has dreams about yeah. it. And when they sold that house, it was almost like losing a family member. Or yeah. Like, we bring it all with us, right? Yeah. I mean, it formulates your philosophy and approach and your intention so much of it is I think is informed by those environments Uh, it's uh, that environment of living in a redwood it's it's very mystical I mean and the you know you'd have these thundering rainstorms that just I mean the awesomeness of nature and you know these redwood trees they're the they're the largest living organism on our earth, the sequoia redwoods. And they're some of the oldest things that are alive. And I didn't they, know that. they've seen it all, you know, and they're How old 300 feet tall. Yeah. They can be a thousand years old, as wow. many are 200 and 300 feet tall. And they're just, it's. I've so, been there. Anthony took me there. It's so awesome. And I. Right? I yeah, I just, I guess it's like that for people who come here and they see all the 
skyscrapers, right? They're just like I mean, redwood trees are a thirty foot, thirty story tall building. A thirty story tall. Yeah, that's insane. (laughs) But it grows. (laughs) I just love that so very much. But you know, I spent a lot of my childhood in Japan. My my mom's father, so my grandpa, my grandfather on my mom, my Japanese grandfather, was a Buddhist priest and. Of a head priest of a really small Buddhist temple, a Nichiren temple in Okayama. And living in Japan, I see the influence, the respect, and the attunement to nature is so refined. Um, not just, I mean, I guess it's illustrated by the 72 seasons, but even on a, on a day-to-day Basis. I remember when I was a little girl, my, my grandmother would wear kimonos and she would lay out the appropriate color for that. It was like by the week it would be appropriate or not. Like early, early spring, the way that one would combine the color combination of her kimono, like the obi and the, all the, of these, the obi is like a, a sash and the kimono, to be, it, it was most refined to be attuned to the season, that particular season. And things of that nature, I think we, we um, my, my aunt and my, my grandparents, very traditional Japanese home with like tatami mat and a tokonoma, which is an alcove that is built into traditional homes that is specifically meant to display a, a scroll that is appropriate for the season. And also, um, my grandma would, and I would go outside and pick some flower that maybe just out of the garden or something, something wild that really illustrated or exemplified this moment in the season. Whatever that was, something that just bloomed. Yeah. And you'd bring that in and put that into the tokonoma, a little vase in the alcove. And it was that sense of attunement and respect and living within the system of nature that I think that um, ethos has, and, and that structure, those things have a tremendous impact. Along with the fact that nature is worshipped. There's a thunder god. Yeah. There's, you know, mountains are god. A, actually, they're... they're the, in Shinto, you have a, a magnificent tree, and it has um, a shimena, which is a rice rope, wrapped around it to demarcate that as a sacred object, a sacred tree. And the rice rope, it says, this tree has become an abode, a dwelling place for a spirit. A spirit has come to inhabit this. And thus making that so the, 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 it, it's very very there's something very beautiful about that kind of respect it is a water god you know pray to the water god when before so you have water for the rice fields it's very beautiful and those associations have impacted my way of thinking about uh, I mean it's all sort of part and parcel because it's all sort of coalesces yeah but it's it's I mean, I definitely, as you're describing it, I get a sense of how you're working and how what goes into it. 
Well, an old outside the temple, there was a really, really old tree that was leaning and leaning and leaning, and part it was dying. It was so old, and is this the one you told me about? Like yeah, they, last year, I think, when uh, we were, like, the one that you created the cube from. This cube from, came from a fallen redwood. Okay. The the uh, my charred wood. So go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. That's uh, that's another. Tree. I have a lot of trees in my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so this particular tree, Japanese tree, it was a tree in Japan, and in, in that was living on the temple grounds, and um, my grandparents determined that it had to be cut down because it was dangerous. It was leaning way too much, and it was dead, dying, dead. It was a half day experience to have this tree cut down. There were Shinto priests, there was a Buddhist priest. I oh, mean, really? praying it was like a whole... to the tree. We are so... The, I mean, the pomp and wow. the, there's the ritual. Uh, I looked out and, you know, there's four old priests basically and this entire praying we are so sorry to cut you down. That was the appropriate method of cutting a tree down, an old, t- the, the respect, and, yeah, and so it took long. half of a day, it took hours, and um, then they cut the tree down. <laughs> and, and I just, I was watching and watching and thinking, wow, so seeing such a paradigm, I'm endlessly fascinated by that. I find that, well, I respect it very much, first of all, but secondly, that is a another system that is occurring right now. Many systems. You know, we were talking about these sort of structures and, and, and the notion of time. There are many systems. There, there isn't just one system uh, that one might think that our Western civilization is the dominant system, but when you really start to examine those types of hierarchies and recognize that there are other systems and it was just up in at Koyasan uh, about a few weeks ago this is a it's very very it's the most holy place in Japan it's a mountain monasteries and shelter and I went and I stayed in a temple as part of I'm on a really long Buddhist pilgrimage <laughs> where you, I you're go going and, to sites yeah I've been to some yeah in India I went to Bogaya <laughs> yeah oh, yeah that's a, a big one and I lived there for three months <laughs> oh, amazing I'll oh, tell you about that. You, you must tell me about this. This is about you. Bodhgaya, that's where the, these. That's where the tree is. The, yeah, the, yeah. the leaves. I have no yeah, talked about it. I have the, one. The body, the body yeah. tree. Um, I was there for three months every day. Oh, and, amazing. And I was 24, and the full moon they would light 100,000 butter lamps. How true. They'd just spend all day <laughs> lighting them. And then I, you walk down at night, and you're just—it's just unbelievable. Mm. But to to go back to I, that I level have a of deep respect in, in uh, religious pilgrimage yeah. sites, not just Buddhists. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm with a, you. Yeah, there's something that's. So, I love churches and cathedrals. Yeah. There's, there's something so sublime and in, in in faith. It's very. It's so Your work is sublime. <laughs> and you have a tremendous amount of respect. I see all these things That's like nice. I see how the impact of these experiences you've had in the work. Mm. Well, it occurred to me when I was up at Koyasan that you know we went to stay in a temple and 
it's maybe a, a, a eight thousand uh, denizens of that. You know, eight thousand people live in the small town. Like sixty five hundred or seven thousand are monks, and it's quiet. Wow. And there are hundreds of Buddhist temples there. It really it's very difficult to get there. It takes takes a long time. You really have to want to go off the the beaten path. But when you get there, the sense of time it's almost as if you enter a different time. And you're time listening to Vector. For example, your morning prayer. The construct of time, I thought, was it was so interesting because there is no CNN, there's no news, there's there's no, and it just is a, it's operating. It felt like a different dimension. It really, in in a good way. Like you're <clears> in <throat> totally different alien world. Or it, something. it could be in a different era. So yeah. an era of another time and sort is coexisting right at this now. very moment as you and I are sitting in yeah. Long Island City, which exemplifies this idea that our perception as we're going and investigating these works for the Munich and the Big Sleep asks to consider perception, right? Our perception, our perception of, of things we, we believe is true, right? What is truth there? What is time there? We, okay, I look at my watch and it's now 1.28. But yet... I think it's like these nighttime clouds. That are, I just keep going back to that vocabulary because the vernacular of clouds and things that shift. Now, clouds at night, can't see them, but they are there. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm seeking vocabulary which uh, may illustrate some of these notions. Yeah. Right, and taking that, the, that appropriate vernacular and, and putting it forth as a means to uh, study that thought. Really, a kind of... You're helping me because I have to write about. <laughs> I have to write an essay for the catalog, sure. and I'm, you're helping me figure out. Giving me, you're giving me ideas to write about. Oh, good, good, good. good. Um, when was that? When did you go do that? Hoya san, uh, that was like three weeks ago. Oh wow, you were just there. Yeah, yeah. So what? How do you feel after that kind of experience, and then you come back here? An experience of that nature, I've, I've always thought that there's your immediate reaction and then there's there are things that unfold over time as you sort of ingest that and synthesize that experience. I lived in a Buddhist temple, so uh, not that staying in a Buddhist temple is such a foreign sort of notion to me because I, I grew up in a Buddhist temple. You know, it, it was my... Every day, you know, yeah, my grandfather was, like was a priest. I've been praying yeah. since I was a tiny little little girl, and I have, and I was a pious little girl. You know, the same person who, you know, if I fell down and scraped my knee, my grandfather would pick me up. Like it's okay, Mia, it's okay. That's the same person who was a religious leader. So in in that way, that the, my particular experience of having a familial connection to a philosophical or spiritual component of my being is quite associated. So I've got very warm feelings for that part of my life. As part of my very long pilgrimage and slow pilgrimage that was sort of the next phase for me to visit Koyasan, as most most Buddhists do (laughs) in Japan at some point. But that said, it it was the complexity, I think, and, and really the the fantastic component is that 
because this mountain temples in such a an extreme physical location surrounded by mountains and when you walk through mist and rain to visit these temples the vocabulary of nature shifts it starts to to become metaphoric for some of these philosophical thoughts or, or maybe it's because i already sort of have that as a foundation in in my mind so something like clouds have always been about impermanence to 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 me but in those settings i think these ideas at least for myself now shelter my husband he probably got something totally different out of that experience i loved it i i think you should go i recommend it i've never even been to japan but we'll talk about oh, that another Peter, time you would, you i'm gonna go you would love it yeah I would. and one day i want to do vector there for I sure i think it's a great and idea then, and i should go there anyway just because I'm going in the fall. Maybe I can see it. October, November. Maybe we'll talk. Yeah. Cuz I I don't even know. I mean, I meet a lot of people when I'm working on the other projects and I met people who were like you should do a vector in Japan. Maybe we'll talk about it more seriously. Yeah. Just because I I kind of asked this about everybody a little bit when I remember to. At one point we like I'm going to live the lifestyle of an artist. I don't like to call it a career cuz I don't think it's a career, I think it's a whole lifestyle. But when did you kind of start to because you grew up in Santa Cruz was it like you were in art class and then you're like I'm good at this or do, do you know what I mean or like when did you start to identify yourself like oh this is what I'm going to pursue. Like I remember when it happened to me. It was like one weekend. Really? Yeah, it was just I was 18 years old and I went with my friend Sally actually we went down to meet this artist who had this small studio school and I was like oh my god this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life wow so it was just like one day an epiphany yeah, yeah. it was an epiphany yeah. and it was like oh, I love epiphany I never went back <laughs> so but I didn't even know what, that you could be an artist I always had art in my life my father and mm-hmm. I'm always kind of curious because it's such a It's like you're saying I'm going to live a different system than the one that I'm surrounded by. Mm-hmm. It's different. Thinking about that in a sort of chronological yeah. way, I remember being a really little girl. I'd be like four, or maybe even younger than that. Not having I learned how to speak Japanese first before English. I was living in Japan. not having the full capacity for verbal expression. I understood most things, but it took me a while. I think I was you know, um, verbal communication is still not my strongest suit. I'm an adult. I'm an adult. You're doing a good job. <laughs> I try. I try. Yeah. I, I I try. I was fascinated because I was surrounded by all this Buddhist iconography in my grandfather's temple. and i know that they contained important messages nichiren buddhism is all about chanting and there's a lot of well there's sutra reading in in most buddhist sects but especially in the nichiren which is the lotus sutra sect you can sort of understand it's ancient japanese so it's not really there and it's anachronistic sort of japanese layers not not contemporary japanese it's kind of hard to understand 
what's being chanted and then there's drumming as well so it's very song-like in, in many ways but I do remember just being so fixated and, and curious and influenced by the imagery and I knew it contained something very important because my grandfather who I loved so much spent all this time and all this ritual waking up at 4.30 every morning and all of the people that would come into the temple and, and were praying and in, in earnest, you know, and just, and I would look at the, their, the countenance on these faces of, you know, pious people is, is about, I think it's the most beautiful look on people's faces when people are, are in that state of, of worship and it, it doesn't matter what religion it is. They're, they're all doors to the same house, you know, they all are. And that started me in thinking about how interesting and powerful it, these religious, religious iconography is. As an adult, I, when I sort of became more and more, and more cognizant, it remained with me that religious iconography in particular is for the masses, uh, oftentimes it was for the illiterate, and it contains very abstract notions, mercy, grace, hell, those are abstract notions that are communicated to people that couldn't read, perhaps, for example, or I'm not just talking about Japanese, uh, or Buddhist, or, you know, or Hindu. Um, So that idea of something just placed, uh, it's it's so democratic, you know, there's something that was felt so fair about that. Even if you didn't get the full meaning, you we're getting something. Like you knew, you know something's there. You know something's there. By the way people are acting, by the way it looks, and like... I think that is so the powerful. and the yeah. architecture it's in, and yeah. just all of it. You're encountering something that has some token that's emanating some, all these different things, kind of thing. So that, so sacred images have always... Which fascinated me because I grew up around you know, seeing things, and which is pretty unique. Coupled with, you know, I remember being back in Santa Cruz in the mountains, and there was this bronze sculptor who lived way up in the mountains and had this big red barn, and and he was so such a lovely. He looked like Santa Claus. He acted like Santa. He'd give my sister and I cookie. It was just yeah. this beautiful artist. Uh, had a foundry and. Oh, I saw these bronze... I, when I saw the bronze foundry and the objects that came out of his... And that he was forging, uh, just that manipulation of bronze that he was doing these um, works with tension. And I just thought, wow, you could do this? This is obviously exactly what I would like to do, is live in the middle of the mountains with a red barn and, you know... Here's somebody devoting their life. It was to, such a fabulous. So you back. So you saw that, and you saw the other. Well, I didn't realize until then that oh, that's just what this person. He wakes up every day, and he's devoted his life to making things. Without you know, when you're nine years old, reality appears to be such that there are no consequences of. I didn't know why he was making them. It yeah. didn't really matter. Yeah. It was and just like this magical guy in the... That is the right, yeah, that's the appropriate word. Uh, and I thought, okay, <laughs> that's for me. <laughs> and, you know, I have an affinity to metals for 
a couple of reasons, but primarily because my uh, in my family history, my my Japanese family were swordsmiths, uh-huh. and there's a swordsmith on the um, Ando, my grandfather's side of the family, who uh, was very notable and made a a sword that is a national treasure. So it's just it's really at sort of the highest degree of refinement for those objects and there's a lot of pride around that in in my Japanese family. And were those swords, are they ceremonial or were they for being used also? That one was for being used. Um, at that time, it, no, we're going back to yeah. over, you know, we're, we're going to a different era where when swords were actually being yeah. um, made, um, commissioned, used. I think, you know, I I'm mixed. I'm 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 Japanese and and Caucasian, and my town of Okayama, you know, in the '80s, did not have any Caucasian people in it. It's a homogenous Japan is homogenous. So in the kind of seeking of my own identity, I looked for one into my past history, mm-hmm. and the Bizen Okayama used to be called Bizen, and I was very drawn to this legacy of the swordsmithing. I'm very drawn to, so Bizen uh, Okayama is now, Bizen is what Okayama used to be called, there's iron in the soil. So the, the earth has iron, which makes for fabulous swords because the, you, you, know, you, you smelt, you, you create, ultimately the, the iron is, is in the earth mm-hmm. and it's taken out of the earth and you know, it's refined into steel. And, um, also Bizen where Bizen Yaki is a ceramic that's very, very beautiful and unglazed and the iron uh, oxidizes and they have this sort of rusty look. It's very beautiful. And so those are the things that I started looking at very carefully as a uh, teenager. And when I started welding, I guess it was that way too. I, I had a, oh, I don't know, I was maybe 19 or something. and. It was arc welding, so I had full mask on. It was mm-hmm. pitch, dark, yeah, pitch black in there. <laughs> and somewhere inside that welding hood, it was so clear to me that it wasn't that I was a good welder, because I wasn't, but I thought this is the material that I would like to spend my time and commit to and devote myself to not just for my familial relationship to it, but there is something very particular about and unique about the nature of metal, which is that it has an ability to redirect light. And in my thesis of comparing this notion of all things being ephemeral and, and transitory in Buddhism, as well as in, in physics, it became a substrate that communicated the notion. And so it sort of coalesced it at that moment in my modification and in manipulating metal by welding. And I was working on, on a n- number of, you know, I used to, I worked just in a foundry and did blacksmithing, all sorts of things like that. But it occurred to me that you can spray paint something to be metallic, but it does not have that really beautiful and unique property of redirecting light. It, it, that it's not necessarily reflection it is really this ability to communicate 
this fleeting nature of, of, of light, this, the evanescence of, of light, of, of, which really ultimately becomes a discussion about time. Yeah. So those are the things, it sort of came together in that way. So many... And I knew it. Organic and intricate things and experiences that came together and they all melded. I think that's really kind of, if I look at, if I try to analyze the chronology, I think it, one, it's exposure and and I think also that material maybe starts to speak to you and starts to unfold as your vocabulary. I think then away you go. You have that ancestral history, like it might be in your code, your genetic code, to like <laughs> seriously to work potentially with these materials. Potentially, like, I, I don't know if that's how. I have a deep respect for it. I, I think that that harnessing and highlighting the nature of materials—it's with the metal. It's also glass. You know, it's 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 a respect. I think for the the materials that that you work with, right? You're in collaboration with a material. The, the nature of glass is that it fractures very easily and that it changes its opacity. So this is high, th- these works here highlight that very intrinsic and very unusual and, and very, it's a unique, it has a unique nature. That's the nature of glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the nature of, of, of metal. And you get, you explore it as, it's like you've explored the, these materials as far as you can go. You know, well, let's see how far amazing. I can go, because I'm constantly yeah. sort of... <laughs> you know, you also have to play and allow yourself to play with yeah. and, and challenge I was going to say before, like, sometimes I make things because I have to see it. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm even so know why. I'm curious and interested. In yeah, that, and I, mean. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm making until I'm standing in front of it. Like, <laughs> well, you know, follow those. Um, you're compelled. And to follow that is respecting, I think, your own thought process and, you know, curiosity. And, and, and beside the fact that there is such rigor in the making of art and the thinking of art and... And there's tremendous, it's, it's a, I can only say it, it's really a rigorous process. It, but it, so within too. that, I, I think there is play where you say, oh, I, you know, I don't, you know, you just sort of throw caution to the wind and say, you know what, I'm going to crack a bunch of glass. And I don't yeah. even care because yeah. I think it'd be really neat to do that. And I don't really like when people tell me that I can't, you know, like, oh, no, that's not possible. You know, it's like, well... (laughs) You're like, I'll figure it out on my own. Well, (laughs) since I know the chemistry in particular of, like, growing the corundum on the aluminum, it's like, well, I know that I can. It's aluminum that has been electrochemically modified by growing a layer of aluminum oxide called... Corundum. I mean, the layman's term for corundum is sapphire crystal. Okay. Um, sapphire is an aluminum oxide. So this object has been transformed f- from a solid block of aluminum into having all the properties of a sapphire crystal, which is number nine on the Mohs scale. Number ten is the hardest substrate we have, which is diamond. Mm-hmm. And number nine is is just underneath that in terms of hardness. So this is an incredibly tough and hard 
opt it's it is a sapphire. This has been rendered into a mineral. I'm very interested in metallurgical alchemy. You know that, and so this uh, becomes something else. It literally, physically, has a layer of sapphire crystal grown mm-hmm. around it, and that has allowed me to take dye and water and Bring paint it out. this. Then you have you see all these soft yeah. areas. That's water. So it is it is both incredibly tough but it's so sensitive and delicate. It has recorded my water falling off of it. So this And then you fix you know, it somehow, it. right? Well yeah so here's some water right there. So okay. Yeah I see. It. So, so how do you fix it? Oh then you have to put it in a boiling vat and that physically it's really neat snaps the crystal shut okay. and the dye becomes a permanent resident of the surface. Okay. So, what I like about this is Is that it's not different painting. than those in that respect? It is. It's a different process. That's a totally different yeah. process. If you touch this, this feels exactly just like yeah, a block of it's cold, like yeah. aluminum is, because there isn't any paint. So the coloration, the modification of this, this color is permanent. And it has become a resident of the surface. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I it's bound. It's, almost, mm-hmm. it's not. It is. It's not on the surface. It's bound. It's like. Yes, yes. And this vocabulary of, of almost a watercolor feel has been created with an industrial process. And I'm interested in that dialogue as well. I'm really I'm interested in something that is this in industry. This is the strongest coating we have, strongest thing we have. This is used by folks like NASA, who right. aluminum is very lightweight and malleable. You build your spacecraft out of that and go through an anodization process where you grow an, an anodic layer. And because if you put a sapphire stone into space, it withstands those conditions. An aluminum block of whatnot will not withstand those conditions. So, so this, this is the strongest yeah. thing, then the toughest be, thing yeah. we are able to make. What happens with glass in space? Oh, that's a good question. I'll have to look at that. They talk about making these giant solar sails like I read articles. Oh, I read about that, yeah. Yeah, about yeah. putting them between us and the sun mm-hmm. and collect because the amount of light that comes from the sun in like a day is enough to power the whole planet for like a year. I mean, obviously, we're far from that, but I wonder what materials could stay out in space like that and then... I'm just working on this piece, which has to do with... It's probably um, some kind of... Oh, well, what's this? This, this is just a, this is a yeah. study right now. This is another... So it's a sort of a, an installation of, um, I'll show you a photo of it. I'm so interested, it, it's, it's about energy and the solar wind yeah. that comes in and encounters our environment. Have you seen them? Yeah. Yeah, where did um, you go? I've just seen them from flying over um, in the, from the airplane. Just, okay. I, I have not been I only saw it once in Bergen, Norway. But it was very subtle. So, like, I, it was nighttime, and there was a mountain, 
and there was green coming from behind the mountain aglow, and it looked like it was a city behind the mountain. But it wasn't. No, there's nothing behind the mountain. It's, it's just a... But it wasn't like in the photographs, like streams. It, it was just... just a, it was a green glow, just like when, as if mm, you saw a city. Yeah. I think I have to go way, way more north to see the actual, like, fingers spreading out. It's my plan to go this winter. We had to go during the winter, at least in Alaska and, and Norway. Yeah. Um, I've always wanted to go up and spend, like, a month somewhere where it's dark all the time. I like, like it's a fantasy of mine. And I think yeah. there's some artist residencies up there. I North. think so too. Um, Norway. Norway or Iceland? Yeah, both. I know there is in Norway. Oh, here. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. This is the... Uh, yeah. No, this is the... I, I, have, I remember the other one. Right. The one with the trees. Yeah, it's a similar sort oh, of I love concept. This. Um, immersive. God, I love this. You know, the, the aurora... Um, and you haven't made, this is like a, a proposal. Mm, yeah, you haven't done it yet. Right? Mm, this is the, um, the study Ooh. for it. Those are photons that are created by... I'm really interested because the magnetic field is, is fainter at our poles. So I'm very interested in this encounter of... Uh, it's the solar wind that comes from the sun that encounters our atmosphere and um, produces a, a photon. <laughs> <laughs> a photon. <laughs> so those are all the, you us. saw those all that green that you saw. Those, yeah. are, those are photons there. That <laughs> wow. So that's I, I, it's been on my mind, and I like the idea of being able to, to s- walk into that. I would love to stand inside that. Uh, yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> Maybe when you do it, I'll figure out where it is. And- Take a pilgrimage. Oh, I'll t- no, I'll, t- I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll invite Love you. It. <laughs> well, I think you know. These are all really iterations of a similar. It's an examination of um, a thought that that sort of is proceeding along, and you see, you know, that whether that they is, all have a similar algorithm, but the materials are different. And the outcome is different, but I feel like there is a kind of thread through all these different works that you do. Yeah, I, I think so. Like in, um, it's like research and materials and and. I spend a lot of my time doing and research like on patience and yeah. trial and error and like. Well, I mean, ultimately, when yeah, I'm, I'm a very much a materials person. Yeah. I, I Way more than me. Very drawn to elements. <laughs> I, I really am a materials. I mean, I'll work with materials too. Yeah. And I'll push them to that point I'm not really listening to the materials themselves. I mean, I think there's a, there are so many yeah. ways to go about this. Yeah. It really yeah, it's yeah. just... I mean, just from talking to artists now, I meet so many and they Everyone talk to Everyone has, them, which is the beauty in this. And it's completely this. different. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, and I'm always like, wow, I didn't even... One guy in Munich, he like, he makes these films and they're so weird. And <laughs> there's like a mouse man. And like, it's just so different than anything. It's like his whole life, 40 years, he's been working on these. How do you know what I mean? And it's as in-depth as what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it's just totally... The I mean, you have a great position of... Being able to enter into these yeah. microcosms that are it's so wild. developed. I'm like, I don't even know what to think of it. I'm, <laughs> oh, 
cool. I'm just grateful. Mm-hmm. And I get, and I just, it just makes me love people who decide to live this lifestyle more and more and more because it's just so weird and such a different decision to make for your life. I, you know, I, I, I'm... It's wild. 40 years. I'm thinking just, about that, actual the, your initial question about the decision. And I'm wondering if a decision is really more of a commitment. I mean, I didn't have a choice. It doesn't feel like I did. It felt like... Yeah. This... It was. It felt like I had a vacuum, and then something was like the answer to that vacuum. You know, it filled it up, and it was like, okay, that's it. And without that, I don't even know what I would be. I feel like I. Because I, I didn't have a purpose before that. I felt like empty inside, and maybe it's that emptiness that led me to this. But it's probably different for each person. I've been an artist my entire adult life. Yeah. I've, I've never done anything but this. And in preparation for that, all since sort of teen. And to be completely frank, I've never even thought about something else to do. It's just not there. Yeah. It hasn't been there. It's, not, it's something that I've never thought about. I know what the word commitment means, and it's a comfortable state for me. But you had access to these monks and priests Maybe that's and they had a total life commitment to this thing outside that's of, right. like you had an example of that. I know? mean, that, that paradigm is maybe something that made my choices natural or something that is without thought too much. I don't know, I didn't struggle with, I, I didn't have a... Yeah, it sounds like we didn't have any... I mean, sometimes obviously, it's like, no, oh, I, I, I struggled, I have been struggling. Yeah. It's hard to, to be an artist. It isn't, it's, the, hard it's not an easy path. It, it, it isn't yeah. an e- and it is an unconventional path, yeah. especially if all of your resources are based upon the things that you, really, it's, yeah, it's, a, hero, it's a harrowing uh, uh, thought. I think for those of us, we we don't have another choice. It just has to work. There's no plan B. There's no sort of alternate op. I mean, what am I going to do? Someone, well, I'm looking for... (laughs) No one's not going to knock on my door. Like, I'm looking for someone who can turn aluminum into a rainbow. Like, that I can do. I actually can't. Yeah, I don't think I can do that. I don't think there's much of a a job market for that. Yeah, like when people come to me (laughs) and they're like, oh, well, if it doesn't work, what else are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. No, don't even pay mind <laughs> to that. Well, Why yeah, I think don't. of that? That's not, that's I mean, not used just, to anyone. I don't care anyway. I'm like... No, but, it's, uh, it's, it's that kind of thinking, I think, is not very um, productive because you're also... Why not just be participant in the fact that this is what you're doing at this very moment? Yeah. You know, because if you're... Tr- Planning for something that hasn't even occurred yet. I don't know. I'm not to preach. I don't. <laughs> not to preach. No, but I'm. I don't care. I just. I'm so stubborn with that. Well, you know, it's such a privilege to even be a participant in the art yeah. world and have the work supported, and to God, what a privilege! Really, I I, I feel so. But grateful. I feel like even if that didn't happen, you'd still devote your life to it. You know, know, I was talking to Shelter and I said, you know, Shelter, I would be such a happy being 
sitting back in the Santa Cruz mountains and um, making pottery like my mom used to do, yeah. you know, and, or doing daku or Yeah, there is painting, a complexity you know, to where you're at right now that, I mean, I'm an outsider just looking in, but like, there's a complexity to flying around and doing projects all over the world. And, yeah, it's, you know. it's gotten that way. I, it manifested in a way that I wasn't able to sort of perceive that in the beginning. I am the happiest when yeah. I'm alone in my studio and I, I, I'm it's perfectly happy. I'm so introverted and I, I just... Give me a piece of metal yeah. and some sandpaper and some patina, <laughs> and I am happy. All I'm good. Oh, take it long and close it up. That's the best. I mean, in a way, that's what it's all about. But you don't know that. And there's certain things you want to achieve, and then you achieve those things, and you're like, "Oh, that's cool." But sometimes you have to achieve certain things to realize that it's the making that's the best part. It's the processing, and you know, a lot of the other things aren't as fulfilling. Like certain achievements. It's it's very yeah. in my mind. It is. It's so simple. Yeah. It's so simple. The star that I follow is. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice. To one. make the work. Yeah. That's all I want. That's all I want yeah, in this life. I, de- I have dedicated my life to that. Every decision I make is judged against that. Is this going to allow me to sit in my studio and make what I want? I judge it against it. That's my star. And mm-hmm. if the answer is no, then I don't do that. Okay. If the answer is yes, and then I have to go and fly to this place and uh, give a talk or what have you, or, or I, I'm, I'm privileged to be invited to yeah. even exhibit no, yeah. in these places of, look at the landscape, there are so many choices of artists who can be participant, and that honor has has been given to myself. For That yeah. is a, such an honor, really. Yes. Uh, really, I... I I have so much gratitude for even those those types of opportunities and okay so you have to you have to that's part of your responsibility I used to oh, I used to be so I guess it's frightened I don't know embarrassed I get embarrassed really easily and I, I don't I, I'm sort of shy and I don't feel comfortable talking to people I don't know and all of this mm-hmm. that whole all of those things that come with certain personality types uh, mm-hmm. and I remember Shelter's like well you gotta go to the open because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's really your responsibility yeah. but it can't be everything that you just like that's what it's about is that yeah. <laughs> my friend said something so funny <laughs> and um, you know it's not work until something sucks yeah. <laughs> otherwise it's, it's kind good. of playing all the time and, and I, yeah. I I don't know and it's what we do work opening, there, there is you know, openings are weird to me what's weird are the di- those dinners after the opening uh, it can get those awkward dinners I'm like ah uh, well if you spend 99.9% yeah. of the time on your own like all us artists we do this we have constructed these paradigms for ourselves right? we've structured our lives so that we're in our studios and then there's the 1% of the time when you go to the opening or go to the dinner and yeah. you talk to a whole bunch of people and, and um, there's a privilege in, in, in doing that but it's also sort of counter to I think your daily existence and that gap sometimes it gives me butterflies sometimes I wonder if people realize how much time we spend alone 
Because it doesn't seem like it well, from the know, outside. Well, the, you know, these, I mean? the, the, the things that are being made just fit. Well, you're a painter, you know. I mean, the, the that. It's thousand, hundreds of hours. The hours, the layers, the energy, the, 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 the physicality of. And just being alone in your thoughts and, or being in that flow or whatever. It takes such a long. People always ask, oh, how long does it take to make that? And it's like, Two months or a year? I love doing things that take a long time. I think you develop a relationship to yeah. that thing and, and... Sometimes it doesn't even happen. Like, <laughs> I was wanting... I wanted to make this video work. Mm-hmm. It gener- started generating like six years ago. And I just made it last year. And I just made a piece of it. I have, yeah. It's what I'm going to show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the bio. Oh great! Okay. So oh, I can't wait to It's see been you. like I've been collecting videos for six years, and it's like, and I didn't even start getting to it until last year, and, and now I want to make it longer. I was, and I still haven't started working on it yet. <laughs> I have like a month. Well, you're working on it now because, as I said, the in contemplation under, phase is yeah. just as important. It is, in fact, I think the most important. Really, I mean, obviously, the physical execution of a work and that technical execution is imperative to the, the work, but, you don't know, the, the, the thinking of the work, it's not a work unless you're, you've had that development, right? It's slow. It's a long time. It's okay. It's slow like, is good, I think. Yeah, I like it, too. Slow is really... That's just the way... I mean, some people just... Boom. Like, yeah. I met them and I'm fascinated by that too and I actually did something I never it's such a basic thing I did silk screen for the first time and it was oh, like instant, instant art I was like wow <laughs> and it I, I loved it I want to do more of it <laughs> to balance out my slow dripping well, water into the cup well, <laughs> but I, I love yeah. that devotion I like the way you put it there's something about that line. Peter. Yeah, there's that. But you touched on it before. There's this line, and then you like push past that line, and it takes. It's almost like ninety percent. You can get to that line really easily, but then to cross that line, it takes like ninety percent of your energy. And That's it's a like, good way to put it. I think, especially it right almost. now, things are so fast. Right, Instagram yeah. has made uh, the consumption of imagery with this speed that if you're one who makes experiential artworks things that change or are mutable or or have multiple views or require a relationship to ascertain the full scope then it's I think some of those things are lost in the, the, the sped up time which we currently live in I just right now it's, it's but I actually noticed that people are starting to seek out and value the slow mm-hmm. things because oh, of right. that right. instantaneousness because the they can get images easily yeah. so in some ways the value or the meaning of the slow things is becoming greater somehow people are seeking out authenticity I find you know if you sit for a while you notice that the tide comes in and it goes out right? that, that, that's 
you know, there is there are systems in place with pendulum swing, right? So I think there's a backlash against something, and then it goes. It, yeah, it goes back and forth. It is. But I do feel like we're in a time where, when I look to the future, it <laughs> seems like these things are going to have more of an impact. These made things, and I, they have in the past, and they have in the future, and there's been times where it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Analog yeah. things, craft, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, I, I, and yeah. Really. I like the idea that you're combining both too. You're using like some of these methods for making things in a way to craft things. I mean, the re- reality is that our relationships with nature and, and things of an industrial nature are to be examined because there's ultimately a, a place of harmony there. I think there's that sort of examination of these systems. What is the system? You were talking about Japan and all that respect for nature, but then they also have the flip side of the coin. They embrace technology probably more than most cultures right now. Precisely. It's such a dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, and there must be some relationship to that somehow. I don't know what it is, but you probably have a better sense, but I... I mean, is it paradoxical or is is it a harmony that's occurring? I mean, clearly this is occurring in the same sort of state of... Because don't they embrace new technology more than most other cultures? Absolutely. And, and, and I'm just getting this from media. Mm-hmm. You are there experiencing and AI it. And AI. I mean, look how yeah. advanced they are technologically. It's, it, I think it's really fascinating. Um, They're embracing both. Yeah. And That's somehow true. integrating it seamlessly. Without what to feels go. to me as being... Um, in a state of tension. I think it begets a question uh, such as... I mean, I can't speak for all of no, Japan. No, but really you just can, tell what you experience and what you perceive. You know. Is there a tension or is there a sort of... You know, I, I, I'm a seeker. I think as I go along and execute the works, I, I find myself... See, even though it, it, there's... A physical, oftentimes physical rigor, especially in the paint of the sanding and the fire and the burnishing and the layers and the urethane and the res, all of these these technical things, I find ultimately that I'm seeking something that ultimately feels tranquil. There's a tranquility and harmony that I'm seeking. It's a sort of a pursuit. It's just always in the background where the rigor... You know, in Zen, <clears throat> Zen Buddhism, uh, there's this notion that a total absorption in a task is something that helps get to like a mu, like a nothing, no, no mind. Yeah, state. I think I told you last year. I when I was in Bogaya, I met these monks, and they would do a hundred thousand prostrations. Yes. Yeah. So that takes three months, eight hours a day. Yeah. So. It's like all this rigor mm-hmm. to reach a state of harmony, you know. That is so, sort of the, the underlying I love thought. those practices. Like when I experienced it, they do you remember they build these towers with the sand and the thing, mm-hmm. and, and then they destroy yeah. it and then build it again and destroy it. The sand mandalas. Yeah, and the sand mandalas. Yeah, those things have had a big impact on me. Mm-hmm. There's the devotion and the the um, huge amount of work and effort 
to reach this state of harmony. Mm-hmm. And then that's what I get from what you're saying. It's really, yeah. It's wild. <clears throat> it is wild. It's, I just, I was thinking about, I just have, I have a, a, up at the Cornell Museum, I, I did this piece, I don't know what it was, reminded me that um, there's a, a Zen, oh, we're talking about the Zen monk, oops, who inspired me uh, in this most recent piece that's up right now. It's, it's ocean. Are these the silk? That's the silk, yeah. Wow. And so Dogen, they say Dogen said, this is an English translation, but said being illuminated by the moon dwelling in the quiet mind, even waves are breaking down and becoming light. And I love this beautiful, beautiful, most beautiful of, of ideas because it's so that tranquility or calm being illuminated by the moon dwelling in the quiet mind even waves are breaking down and becoming light it's it, it says to me something about that rigor and it's it's things sort of from a certain perspective that quietude is the ultimate outcome for these uh, rigors and these go through all of these things and it's something that I, I've been thinking very much about because these processes you know this digital printing or mm-hmm. I mean I 90% of these things are paintings made by hand by myself mm-hmm. and with pigment and urethane but a lot of these you know these types of works are engaging other techniques as well and other technologies and they're still conveying that quietude <laughs> I like that. Quietude is my favorite word, I think. It's cool. I'm glad we got that. I'm <laughs> good. On the, I don't know if it's a poem or a statement. It's a profound thought, yeah. isn't it? Maybe we should end it right there. We've done the two hours. Oh, good, good, good. And this is such a great... Oh, good. Let's see how long... Well, that didn't feel like two hours. It's always like that. How? Isn't that wild? I did yeah. I can't believe, really? That yeah, was too, yeah. oh, Peter, time stops. Oh, say that, time yeah, stops. Really? <laughs> Peter, time stopped right now. <laughs> but isn't that wild? It always happens. So, and we keep going and going. We, one time, I was with this one artist. We talked for three and a half hours. And I was like, we think we should stop. Like, I don't oh even know God. if I can, I, I don't even stops. know if anybody will listen now. <laughs> Just I don't even know if anybody's going to listen. We're going to see. <laughs> this is an experiment. Oh, amazing. I mean, I'm doing this. I don't care. Yeah. If it, This is not... I have no goals. I just think oh, artists are amazing. It's I want to talk to them. Yeah. Pe- maybe the only people who will listen are other artists, but... And, you know... I just I, think it's worthy the, of if being... If the audience dictated what we make, we would yeah. be in so much trouble. No, yeah, nothing would matter. get made. Yeah. And, <laughs> and ultimately, you can't consider the consequences because consequences yeah. are not your friend and they're not your enemy and they don't exist. I think stay I just know in that. your own self. Yeah. You know, stay in your own self. Don't worry about the other selves out there. Let's say goodbye. Oh, oh okay. Uh, okay. You can say anything you want. 
Thank you so much for your time oh, and for you. the talk. It's very nice and it's such a privilege to be part of your podcast. That concludes episode two of the Vector Interview podcast. I want to thank Mia Ando for participating in the project. It was truly an honor to speak with her. For more information about Mia, go to miaando.com. For more information about our current and future projects, go to vector.bz. And you can find us on Instagram at three underscores vector three underscores. If you like the podcast, we ask that you make a one-time contribution for the episode. 50% of the proceeds will go to the artist. You can also support all of the Vector projects by becoming an ongoing subscriber at Patreon slash Vector Productions. I am Peter Gregorio. You can find me on Instagram at Peter underscore Gregorio. And if you want to see my artwork, visit my website at PeterGregorio.com. Javier Barrios can be found at JavierBarrios.com and on Instagram at underscore Javier underscore Barrios. All of the music was generously provided by the amazing Liz Kosak. You can find her and check out her projects at Zardcom.com. That's Z-A-R-D-K-O-M.com. The title drops were provided by my comrade in chaos, the German artist Sophie Lindner. I also want to thank Melissa Kohlberger for her help with research and writing. And a big thank you to our producer and editor, Todd Tracy. I will leave you with this quote from Mia Ando. Ultimately, I am interested in the study of subtraction to the point of purity, simplicity, and refinement. Thank you for listening. Vector Interview Podcast is brought to you by Vector Productions, Inc. Thank you for listening to Vector. Bye.